Welcome back, friends. So I'm going to continue from the previous episode. I also find it interesting that since the police report, it didn't close the door on the childhood abuse. In fact, it opened it, meaning that not only was I going to have to go deeper into my trauma, but also that my pedophile father would be coming back into my life. Before I get to talk about how Maurice would come into my life again three more times while in my 30s, there are other events I need to talk about before those three chance meetings would happen. Let me explain. After my report in 2005 was successfully submitted to the RCMP, I did not have any sense of closure, and I didn't feel any peace at all. In fact, I didn't feel done or that anything was completed. Instead, I felt anxious and irritated and frustrated, but most importantly, I felt raw, vulnerable, and exposed. I knew I had taken a big step and an important step, but after 16 years of therapy at this point, I felt I needed to do more for me. Something was stirring up inside of me that he was going to get away with this. How could that happen? He was gonna get away with it because my memories are scattered, in my mind at least. That's the dissociative amnesia. How are memories validated in a court of law? I actually don't know, but it's a good question and one that I personally do not have an answer to. But when the police officers told me that it was a he said, she said scenario, I knew this was true because my memories were scattered and there was no physical evidence, not after nearly 30 years. I felt I didn't have any power. And at that time, I still thought this was molestation, which to me felt less than rape. In 2017, in a healing session, that truth of the rapes would finally be revealed. And another two years after that, I would finally receive an official PTSD diagnosis. And that's a whole other story, and I'll get to that later. There is nothing like a he said, she said to make me feel invalidated and disbelieved. Even I had a hard time believing myself because I thought, well, it's only molestation. Isn't that how you parent? Isn't molestation just part of it? But who honestly believes a little girl? A little girl from the age of three to 10. Do you believe your children? Because mine didn't. They didn't want to, and they didn't know how to. So who's willing to take the story of little children? Aren't children always making up stories and having imaginary friends and living in fantasy and dreamlike worlds? Aren't adults the ones who are taken at face value because, well, they're an adult. They're more experienced. What about the memories I have of walking around in the constant fear, in the constant fight or flight or freeze mode, or in the tension of my body if I'm in an elevator with a man or a group of men and I need to protect myself with keys in between my fingers and keep my distance and place that scowl of don't fuck with me face on, even though inside I'm crumbling with tremendous fear that this elevator man may, might, not likely is thinking of raping me. Or that he's having thoughts of, she's a woman, she's a girl, a teenager, she's easy prey because I'm stronger than she is. This is a memory and body sensation of every single elevator ride I have ever gone on, all the time, even now. Or what about my memories of terror? The terror walking outside at night, no matter how gorgeous of an evening it is, 
constantly afraid of whatever man in a hoodie, or on a bike, or in a car, dare I say a van, that could be behind me, even with the keys in between my fingers. So I don't get to enjoy those warm nights outside somewhere, or on a patio, especially not in a park, not under the stars, or camping in a tent, or after office hours when I used to work downtown in Calgary, like God forbid. I can't because it's now dark outside and darkness means vulnerability and that I'm asking for it and that a woman in the dark is easy prey. So even if I want to enjoy a pleasant night outside to take a stroll by the river, I have to miss out on the joys of a night stroll because I don't believe that I can be safe. Or if I'm in a desperate need of my traumatic coping mechanism addiction to chocolate because I have another panic attack and I need my sugar fix to calm me down and make me feel safe and satisfied because only sugar makes me feel safe and satisfied that way and I've got to go to 7-Eleven or some kind of convenience store and I can't because it's dark out and it's not safe for me to go get my coping mechanism chocolate. And if I can't walk out at night, I certainly can't sleep at night because every night something could happen. It could be in a walkout basement suite. It could be in an apartment. It doesn't matter if I'm alone, even in the house that I'm in right now. If it's at night, I can't sleep. I spent years having an army knife or a chef knife or some kind of uh, meat cutting knife under my pillow. Always having to touch it every hour. Is it still there? Am I still safe? I wasn't able to sleep. I could never sleep because I was constantly in hypervigilant mode in case he would come in at night, in case anybody would come in at night. I remember that. Or the memories of the copious days and nights during my teenage years, bringing in so much and binging on so much unhealthy food, because if I make myself fat and ugly, they won't notice the beautiful, athletic, voluptuous woman with the curly dark hair that I am becoming because that's not safe. And while I'm camping with my uncomfortable parents during the summer months, when I take my hard-earned McDonald's money that I make at $5 an hour, and I walk up to the campground convenience store, and I start buying and pounding back those Wonder Bars and Kit Kats and Crunchies and Mars Bars, and let's not forget those boxes upon boxes of the old Dutch potato chips that used to have two bags inside, the sour cream and onion flavor, because my body is aching and craving the salt and sugar, and I don't know why, but my stomach, waistline, and undiagnosed trauma do. And don't even think of ever trying to come up from behind me. Don't even come close to me or approach me, especially if you're a man. I have those memories. You will get my emotionally terrified drowning inside with fear and my fuck you face. Don't come near me even if I'm dying inside so desperate to be loved because I can't. Because all men, all boys want to hurt me. And it's not safe to be me. I have memories of all the times that men would look at my breasts and I think, oh fuck, here we go again. Is this going to happen again? I have to hide them. I need large clothes. I need to eat and make myself so ugly that they don't see me. They don't want me. They don't crave me because all men, all boys, all the time for decades. Don't try and scare me. I have those memories and every time that someone tries to scare me because they think it's funny, I am triggered all over again and that lasts for hours. Not only do I want to turn around and punch someone, which I've never done, I, I, I can't handle it. I just can't handle it. So don't try to scare me. I can't even go and watch any horror movies or any thriller type of movies because to me that's not entertainment. 
People find it entertaining. They find horror movies entertaining. For me, that's not entertaining. That's reality. Maybe I can laugh at it with other people. Maybe I can laugh at it when Ellen DeGeneres does it to other people because you know what? That's not me. I'm not in that situation. No one's coming out of a box. In my reality, they come from behind me. I haven't even touched on the nightmares or panic attacks that I go through and that I remember. Do those memories count? Does anyone believe me now? Is it still a he said, she said? Do I matter now? How many times has our justice system failed to protect the victims of sexual violence? As you can tell, there is no answer because it's still being counted. So it's 2005 and I've just reported him to the police, but it wasn't enough and I could feel it. It was in that year that my healing would take a sharp turn and take me deeper into my wounds and within the next few years, I would not only see Maurice three more times, but I would also meet my pedophile father for the first time. I felt it wasn't enough for me just to have the report on Marie Schmidt. I needed to let him know that I remembered what he did to me, that the authorities knew what he did to me and that a file was open on him. So I wrote him a letter. I'm sure I have a copy of it somewhere in my journals because that's what I did back then. I made copies of everything. And I remember writing how angry and disgusted I was with him and that the police were going to look into him as a file was open. And I remember signing this like it was like it was the last time I was ever going to have contact with him. No more, I wrote. We're done. It's finished. I wished that was true. When I signed that letter, though, I simply signed my name and I didn't print my name on there because I was still afraid that I was going to be hunted down by him. I remember with my hands shaking that I folded the letter up. I placed it in the envelope and I wrote down his work address because that's where I was going to send it there. I didn't want to know where he lived, but I easily discovered online where he worked. He was a real estate agent, so it wasn't hard. His ugly picture was plastered on the website. And it was a dark little secret I kept to myself that maybe someone else would open up this letter and read it be appalled and disgusted at this man and report him to the cops that it would open up other files and he would be finally outed as a child rapist. But that was just a secret thought. I'm walking to the 7-Eleven to drop it off at the mailbox in front of the convenience store. And the closer I get to it, the more I start shaking and sweating. And it's winter out. I could feel my heart racing and the palpitations increasing as I was doubting if I should actually do this. I could open up a whole new can of worms. He could find me again. I felt like it took me forever to walk those last few steps and I was doubting myself because of how my body was reacting. I stood in front of the box and I just waited. Can I actually do this? I was feeling so much fear but I just opened the box and let it slide down the chute, and I thought that was going to be it. It provided no sense of relief or joy, only fear. I started walking back home with shaky legs and shocked at what I had just done. I had no feelings of bravery whatsoever. Even to this day, I do not feel brave in sharing this story. It just feels like it's something that I meant to do. 
It wasn't long after that a friend of mine recommended a book to me called The Shack by William Paul Young. You may have read it, maybe you haven't. It's a fictional story of a man who confronts God about the murder of his youngest daughter. I'm not a religious person, and this book certainly has Christian tones, but it was the story of the pain this man felt towards the man who abducted and murdered his child. 1. I loved that God was a woman. Yes, absolutely. I mean, shouldn't this be obvious? God then changed throughout the book, which is fine, but I was struggling with the pain of what I had experienced and not finding any peace or resolution at this point, only blame. Just like the father in the book. But at the end, God says, give him to me, I'll redeem him. This made me so angry. Because to me, there is no redeeming Maurice. Why should I give him up to a a God, the God, any God? Because why does he need to be redeemed? It took me a long time to realize that it wasn't about that. It was not about carrying the burden anymore. It was about letting go. So through this book, it just helped me realize the compassion of this father and the importance of finding healing towards the abuser, in this case, Maurice. So I have no forgiveness yet. And that's another episode because that is a work in process. But it did point out the importance of letting go, the need to let go and that I needed to let go. Because this book was so profound for me at the time, I actually purchased two brand new copies. Once again, I mailed one to Maurice at his office yet again. The little dark secret that someone would discover it and out him was still in my mind. And I mailed the second one to my pedophile father, Ron DeGroote. Not to be mixed up with other family members of the same name, because this is a very common Dutch name. Like in writing the letter, I felt this deep compulsion to give these copies to those child abusers. I don't know why, and I'm not quite certain that neither of them ever read it, But I went with my gut that strongly encouraged me to do this. So I did. It's honestly probably more for me to take that action step than it was for them to read something that would make them very uncomfortable. I didn't have the same sensations this time around as I did the first time I sent the letter. In fact, it felt a little more like, fuck you, I know what you did, read this and know that you are a child abuser. Try and find peace with that, asshole. So it was a little bit empowering for me. More in the next episode.